1: Hi, I'm Sam Glover.
2: And I'm Aaron Street. And this is episode 54 of The Lawyerist Podcast, where we talk with Sarah Glassmeyer and Ed Walters about free access to law.
1: Today's podcast is sponsored by Clio. Lawyers, it's time to let your mind do what it was trained to do, practice law. You need Clio, the leading legal practice management software to help take care of the business side of running your practice. Find out more and sign up for a free trial at clio.com. This podcast is also
2: brought to you by Amicus Attorney, developers of legal practice management software. Let Amicus help you run your practice so you can focus on what you do best, practice law. Visit amicusattorney.com lawyerist and get started today.
1: If you enjoy the show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast and click on support the podcast to help us keep new episodes coming every week. So Aaron, just the other day, a really interesting part one of a survey came out, and this is in the ABA's Law Technology Today website. Uh, They did a sort of a a secret shopper law firm intake uh, survey where they had a bunch of people call up law firms and try and get through the intake process, and then report it back on what happened. And there are some interesting st- figures here. Um, less than 10% of the people actually got to talk to a lawyer. 42% of the time, law firms would take three or more days to get back to a voicemail or respond to <laughs> a web-based form. Um, and 3% oh of the callers actually just gave up because it took so long to get the call Uh, answered. Um, Really just an an interesting collection of data and I can't wait to see the rest of it, um, which should be out by the time our podcast releases, but we don't have it yet to talk about. Um, Really, uh, Conrad Sam, who is a a legal marketing uh, person, is reporting the results of the survey, but kind of a really interesting look at how lawyers are presenting themselves to potential clients.
2: Yeah. And it's, I mean, having looked it over, it seems like almost definitive worst practices are the norm. Although I have to say (laughs) (laughs) like his first statistic that only 10% of people got right to an attorney would have been true at your law firm too, since you had Ruby receptionists answering your phones and they properly routed people to you when needed, but yeah. you actually deliberately had a buffer there.
1: Oh yeah, because I was the wrong person to talk to because I was probably crabby because they were interrupting what I was doing. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it's this sparked a conversation in our chat room uh, about uh, the the difference between selling and marketing, and uh, you know, I think what we're getting at with that conversation, what and what this is getting at, is that lawyers are. Um, putting a lot of effort into things that aren't helping them get clients, and then they're they're throwing up this wall. It reminds me of like the old speakeasy, you know? Like, are you somebody who I'm actually going to let in? Clients shouldn't have to work in order to hire you. You should be you should be welcoming them in with open arms uh, rather than erecting barriers. Uh, you know, putting people on hold. An alarming number of people were put on hold twice or more during their initial call, and it's it's just kind of astonishing to me. This is we kind of treat people badly.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and I'm not so sure it's so much the distinction between selling and marketing here as it is about lawyers who think that if they do good legal work, that's enough, as opposed to realizing there's also a component of customer service. Like you have to put yourself in the shoes of someone calling and make them want to hire you, which is related to sales, but all you have to do is like be a nice person, be warm, be welcoming, Set things out so that it's easy for people to do. You don't have to pitch them on hiring you ever right. if you don't want to.
1: No, if you if you get a client with a legal problem in the room with a or on the phone or h- however that happens, um, in in the same time frame as the lawyer who can solve that problem, there's a really good chance that those two people are going to enter into an attorney client relationship. Um, Unless
2: you put up this roadblock of not using their name and right. not actually introducing yourself and putting <laughs> them on hold.
1: Yeah, like a third of the, or uh, about a quarter of these people, uh, law firms, answer the phone law firm. I am a generic, replaceable, interchangeable <laughs> entity with no personality. Like, just, what do you, like, say hello. But let's be clear, for some portion of these folks, that's actually true. It is, but it doesn't mean that you should act that way. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, there's we place so much emphasis on search engine optimization and, and getting people to your website and getting them to fill out a form, uh, but then... But then once they do, we apparently uh, treat them like, eh, I'll, I'll get around to it. You know, th- two, three days is fine. <laughs> I mean, um, wow. I, it makes you wonder, like, how many how many uh, potential clients are these law firms just throwing away while they're putting all of this extra money into other, whether it's lunches with other lawyers or internet marketing, whatever they're doing. How many more clients could they have if they just treated their intake better?
2: Yeah, I feel like there's this attitude that like a law license is a law practice. Mm -hmm. I I I can practice law, therefore I've got a thriving business. And the reality is, like, think about your business too.
1: And and I don't mean to suggest that all phone calls are all you know the potential clients you're not getting back to are all great clients. That's that's probably not true. You know when when we were. Uh, debating whether or not to charge for free consultations. Um, We would always test that. We did test repeatedly whether or not we should be answering the phone. Um, And we often found that, you know, there was no penalty to us for charging for consultations. Those were clients who weren't going to hire us anyway um, and that we didn't want. And so that was a barrier we erected carefully after uh, several rounds of experimentation. And the same thing with answering our own phones, um, we tried answering our own phones repeatedly to see if that made a difference, and it and it didn't. But at the same time, like, there, I don't think that that and you know testing and experimentation is what's going on here. I th- I think what's going on here is just um, not paying attention. I certainly, could be wrong. Certainly, but.
2: if people are on hold for so long that they hang up, that is not optimized testing.
1: Right. Yes. So I think I think the action item here, uh, what should be on your to do list, is. Pose as a potential client calling your firm, or or if or if it, you're solo, so that you can't pose as yourself. Um, ask a friend to do it, yep. um, who's hopefully whose voice you won't recognize. But ask some somebody that you trust to give you honest feedback to be uh, your secret shopper uh, and to come and and call your firm as if they had a legal problem, and and then ask them for feedback. How how did you make them feel through that process? And I, and I would ask a bunch of people you know try to get you know three six people to do it Um, and then try and figure out you know really what impression are you making on potential clients are you driving them away, or are you making it easy to hire you
2: yeah I mean Sam and I have been sarcastic here and incredulous but the reality is there's lots of areas for everyone to improve and you could just get some data to figure out how to be
1: better at this absolutely give it a try and now Listen to my conversation with Sarah and Ed. Hi,
0: my name is Sarah Glassmeyer. I am a lawyer and a librarian. I mostly say librarian because, but I'll give my lawyer credentials for the lawyers' podcast. Um, and I am currently a research fellow at the Library Innovation Lab at Harvard University, an affiliate and an affiliate of the Berkman. Um, Center for Internet and Society. And what I do is research um, the way states publish law on the Internet, basically, and how it relates to access to justice.
3: And uh, I'm Ed Walters. I'm the CEO and co founder of Fast Case, um, where we're democratizing the law and advancing the science of legal research. I guess the bigger mission is to make the world's law uh, universally accessible and understandable. And um, I've also been teaching at Georgetown. University Law Center as an adjunct, in a class called the Law of Robots.
1: <laughs> and and I think you're the second returning podcast guest, by the way, and the first time we talked about the Law of Robots. So.
3: That's right. That's right. Gonna uh, link it in the in the footnotes. Yep,
1: <laughs> I will. Uh, thanks both of you for being here. Um, I am excited to talk about the state of legal information and the consequences for legal innovation um due to the state of it. Um I, I just want to say you guys are two of the more interesting and intelligent people I know there that are out there talking and thinking about legal information, access to justice information and law and all that stuff. And so I'm really excited to talk to you guys today now that we've sorted out our Skype difficulties. <laughs> 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 three three geeks that can't manage to get together yeah. on Skype at the same time. That's awesome.
0: Oh, God, um, so, hard.
1: so, I mean, Sarah, what you're doing right now is you are trying to compile sort of the state of legal information on the
3: Internet, aren't you?
0: Yeah. So that my I'm doing this fellowship for an academic year. And I recently completed the first part of my research, which was a census of how states are publishing their primary law. And by that, I mean, case law, statutory codes and regulations on the Web. And also for the statutes, looked at the print version because with copyright issues, it got a little confusing the way the web, the way they were possibly claiming copyright. So I, I double checked with the print. But for the most part, I'm interested in web-based publishing just because that is kind of the, the new frontier and the future of legal information on the free and open web. Um,
1: so do all 50 states have some, inf- at least some of their s- law online?
0: Surprisingly, no, actually. Um that, that was this this project. I went into it kind of very idealistically, like thinking that for the second half, I would build some sort of tool where a person could get to all the different versions of free law online, but then to find out that they weren't actually even all available. Um, Alabama, for instance, they only put their pure curium uh, Supreme Court decisions online. The... Other decisions are available from the Supreme Court and Courts of Appeals, but you have to have a bar license to access them.
4: Gotcha. As
0: I'm not a member of the Alabama Bar, I could not access them to see things like how, what kind of um, range they have or that sort of thing. And in Massachusetts, their regulations are available, but you have to pay a little over $100 to access them.
1: So Ed, like your company's job is vacuuming all of this information out of the states and putting it like how do you how do you deal with like Alabama? Do you have Alabama Supreme Court decisions on Fast Case?
3: Yeah, we do. And so we end up getting this stuff from all kinds of different ways. It's a total mess, Sam. The uh I mean Sarah has a, a beautiful description of this if you go to uh, her blog, Sarah com forward slash state legal information. Yep. That's where you'll find the uh the findings of her survey, um, but so sort of from my uh, you know boots on the ground kind of work in it. Uh, it is different everywhere. So, for example, in uh, in the state of Georgia, um, if you want to get Georgia Court of Appeals opinions, you have to pay them, and it's like a thousand bucks a quarter. Um, and they literally send an email every day. Huh. Can't get it from the web. Um, everyone sort of assumes that everything is available online. As Sarah's survey would tell you and the uh, survey of national legal materials that Erica Wayne and others put together a couple of years ago, uh, it's very uneven. And, you know, the even things like uh, statutes, where you can find them, there are all kinds of restrictions and claims of copyright. Hmm. Um, I, can, I can tell you, by the way, you know, we, uh, so we publish statutes and court rules and regs and uh, constitutions, things like that. Uh, we pull them from official sources. So we, uh, we got the Georgia regulations from the Georgia Secretary of State's website. Uh, we just got a takedown notice from, <laughs> uh, from Casemaker, who apparently believes they own the Georgia regulations.
1: Sarah, is that pretty common? I mean, are you running into copyright here and you know, left and right as you go around the country?
0: Yeah, it was actually a lot more common than I thought it was going to be. Um, but like for more that I found problematic because the, the copyright was confusing because a lot of times they have a claim of copyright on the bottom of the web page. And I didn't know if that was just, uh, you know, from the web page basic template footer that they put everywhere. So that's why I had to access the print and, you know, to see something like 11 states had actual, you know, it was an unannotated code. Then plus, on addition to that, they, so they, and they still had a claim of copyright. So they really did mean. We mean the primary law, not anything what is, extra. What, what
4: is that all about? How can
1: you copyright public law? That's you, a great well, that's a question, thing. You, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I know that this is an issue out there, and public.resource.org is running into it. Fastcase is running. But what in the hell are we talking about? How is that even possible? How can it? How can I not copy down a law that I'm expected to follow? Yeah, yeah so
0: that's, that's a
3: great th- question. Um, that's,
0: that's why I really look forward to the decision in the Georgia case that although that's really more about annotations, but still to maybe get some more guidance. But we have from the Copyright I- uh, copyright Office, you know, explicitly saying edicts of government cannot be copyrighted by the states, and yet they do it. And so it really does need someone who, in the case of, you need a Carl a Malamud who's willing to get sued who so we can get some actual... Wow.
1: I mean, I, I kind of thought it was like a clerical error that they just put copyright on everything, but states are actually, like, trying to enforce their copyright.
0: Yeah. Alabama, I believe it was, is another one. Like, explicitly says, we claim copyright on our statutes. We claim copyright on the, you know, it's not just on the annotations or the formatting. I mean, because that's the thing. It, it's, it's like the states themselves will do it, but then you get publishers in so i live in indiana in indiana they outsource the publication of the statutes to a west company and indiana when they were creating their statutory code never bothered to create headings so the headings are all copyrighted the text itself of the statute is uncopyrighted Hmm. but you can't you,
1: you can't find your way around without the yeah
0: exactly
3: so let me say just uh two things about this. The the first thing is that uh, it is well established in American law that you can't copyright uh, the official edicts of government. You can't copyright statutes. You can't copyright judicial opinions. You can't copyright regulations. Once you designate them as the official copy of the code, of the regs, of whatever it is, it escapes copyright. You can no longer assert copyright protection for it. There are hundreds of years of law that establish that. There's Hmm. no There's no competent copyright authority in the world who believes that those things are copyrightable. Now, if you want to take the Georgia Code as official and write a book about it, you can totally copyright that. If you want to create your own edition of it that has all kinds of uh, editorial improvements, knock yourself out. But the official version of the Code cannot be copyrighted. That is uncontrovertible. The second thing I want to say about it is that even though that's true people do it all the time. And when they assert the copyright, it has this chilling effect. Mm -hmm. So, entrepreneurs and business people and people who want to create access to justice won't do it because they know it's going to be a million-dollar lawsuit just to establish that they have the rights that everyone knows that they already do.
1: So, maybe we should back up because we've touched on a couple of things already. Um, Sarah, what... what are we talking about here? What is free and open legal information, and why is it important? I mean, it seems intuitively important to me, but I know that a lot of lawyers go, "Eh, I've got Fastcase, I've got Westlaw, I've got LexisNexis, I've got access." It why does it Why is it important?
0: Well, for me, and kind of like the basis of my entire career has been the idea that access to information is access to justice. So this is an existential problem for you. It it is. It's, <laughs> it's, it's completely like this is strong belief like this is what i mold my entire life around Mm -hmm. the idea that in a society a democracy you absolutely to be governed by laws you have as a citizen have to be able to access these laws
1: seems fair and if you're if you're supposed to follow them you should be able to go look them up somewhere yeah
0: i mean you ignorance of the law is no excuse which you know is generally a criminal law maxim but for so many people you know Every And that's and this is one of the reasons why I love being in law school and love the law is how it touches everything we do, you know, no matter what you are, what you're doing, you know, I'm sitting in the middle of my living room now and knowing that there are regulations about the fireproof spray that's on my couch and <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the different curtains and the, the building regulations for that, for the, you know, my kitchen I just had remodeled. So, you know, I, the law touches everything. And the fact that you as a citizen cannot access it without having to pay, in some cases, an exorbitant amount of money, or a library has to pay that money. Um, Well, and we're getting to the
1: point where it's now unreasonable to expect people to get in their car and drive an hour and a half to be able to access information. That's just not acceptable anymore.
0: Exactly. because the way the libraries are purchasing information or making available, you really physically have to be into the library. Um, to get to it even if it's digital you still there are dedicated terminals like the good like the good old days 20 years ago for lawyers that's still how it is in libraries you have a dedicated usually westlaw terminal to access the information so but, so would
1: you be happy if states were just um, creating pdf documents of their codes and stat and cases and putting them online is that enough or are we going are we talking about something else here
0: um definitely something else that would be a good basic start (laughs) in some cases that the states that don't have even all their materials up available, but there's a usability factor. So again, Indiana's example, not their current code, but any archival version, which, as I know from my time manning a reference desk in Kentucky, where I dealt with the bench and bar all the time, knowing what the status of the code was say in 1985 or 1992 is, is important. Um, and so what they do is just pop thousand-page PDFs on the web, which, you know, not searchable, not easy to navigate through. I was on the, you know, the Harvard University pipeline hardwire internet connection. It still took several minutes to download. Um, so th- there's definitely problems with the publication. Con- the In librarianship, we talk about content versus containers because um, it usually... We care more about the content, but the container is important how they publish it because, you know, a PDF isn't often searchable. It's not great for someone who, like a Carl Malamud or an Ed who wants to, you know, use this law for wholesale purposes to republish it some other way. Um, but if, you know, studies have shown, especially in impoverished communities, people access the internet via mobile devices and via cell data. So having a thousand-page PDF is not very usable for a person who wants and
1: to do PDFs. Something. Just aren't usable. Period on a phone.
0: Right. Yeah. So
1: um, okay. So so that's that sort of goes to um, it might be free, but it's not really um, accessible. Open. Yeah. It's not okay. So it's not really open if you can't if you can't even probably download it without maxing out your data plan for the month. Um, and it's not really open if you can't do anything with it or, or access it in a useful way. Like a massive right. PDF it, is free, but it's not particularly helpful.
0: And with the copyright restrictions, that's another way where it may be free. I can go to the Georgia website and look, read their code. Um, but I can't, you know, they have in either states will do it or when they outsource it to a company like Lexus or West to have their publications, they'll put terms and conditions on it. Um, so a lot of times they'll say for personal use only, or they'll specifically put in writers against people like Ed that says you can't republish this. You can't, um, post it anywhere else. You can't make copies of it. So while they may not have, we're not copywriting this law, but we're putting so many terms of use on it that you can't actually really use it. And the things like for personal use only, it does make me wonder, well, if you're a practicing attorney, And you're using, for some reason, you just want to double check something instead of racking up a a minute charge on your Lexis or Westlaw account. Could they use it for their practice? I mean, I think so. But still, again, it's that chilling effect of we're going to put so many restrictions and so many different barriers to access on this that it, as a practical matter, is worthless to put it up on the web that way.
3: That really touches a pet peeve of mine, which is, you know, uh, people will take government information and put it on... Like a really crappy website and say, you know, we have checked the box. We have yeah, blocked freed anyone it. <laughs> else from use it, using it and it's free. So, you know, I, I see this with a lot of publishers who like commercial publishers, uh, who host the, you know, these codes or regulation sites online. And they will say, look, anyone who wants access to the, you know, Georgia code or the Mississippi code has a free website where they can do that. But the with, website with an
1: outdated version of Internet Explorer and <laughs> Silver, and, <laughs> yeah. and an unpatched version of Silverlight installed, right and
3: a copyright restriction on the bottom yeah. or a restriction on the use. If you make it available so that's free, and they sort of say, once we've made a copy of it free, that's all we need to do. Um, but if you if you don't also make it open, then you still got problems. If you make it open, if you say this is our free version of it, and anyone can do anything with it in the world, then, Tim Stanley and Justia can download a copy of it, make it available to a gajillion people. Uh, Carl Malamud at publicresource.org can get a copy. You can put it on Perma CC. Uh, my team at Fastcase can, you know, put it on mobile apps or on Public Library of Law. And what we really want Fastcase is service.
1: we really want like an an XML document that lives at a permanent address. That isn't going to keep jumping around, so that we can get that information and rely on it being there. Right? Is that what we're looking for?
3: So that would be ideal. Yeah. Right. Um, but I would say even before you get to that, like kind of very nice container uh, state, just having the content would be okay. Uh, baby steps. Yeah. So if you, if you make the content available, you'll you'll have like uh, Waldo Jaquith and the state decoded will take copies of it and put it online. Using a you know an open format that makes it uh, human readable and permalinkable and everything else. I would just say like you know free and open is enough. Um, even if it's in a PDF at the outset, I hate that it's in a PDF. But at least if it's in a PDF, you know everyone can do something with it. If you make it available as beautiful XML, but lock it down and say that people can't also use it. No good. Yeah. It, yeah. So free and open first. And then container second. So
1: Ed, like, if you had to guess, uh, like, how much of Fastcase's resources are sucked up in just keeping all of these various conduits to state and federal law alive? Right. I imagine something has to go down every day. Yeah. And like, yeah. how much? How much of your resources, your company's resources, are dedicated just to that?
3: I want to say it's like eighty percent of our headcount.
1: Oh God! Because like I, you know, I, when I talk to Lex Machina, which uh, which is now part of LexisNexis, I guess they have this amazing product that is the entire business model is basically built on figuring out what is in state court um, PDF documents or I'm federal court uh, in intellectual it's property based, court yeah. uh, documents, and and if if those weren't um, badly badly published PDFs. Um, there'd still be a business there, but it'd be a totally different business and a lot cheaper to run the company and you wouldn't have to charge people as much and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it feels like it's just really stifling what you can do because you have so many resources tied up in just getting the information.
3: Well, so this is this is um, a really important point. If you If you make the legal information commoditized, if you don't have to worry so much about spending a lot of money every day to download it and normalize it and format it, And take all the uh, higgery, jiggery, pokey out of it, (laughs) uh, you know, and you could focus your efforts on building stuff on top of it. The array of products and services that would be available, not just to lawyers, but to members of the general public, would boggle the mind. The problem is you have to spend so much time and effort just, you know, creating the raw materials that there's very little uh, effort available at the end to create more. Um, So you think about, industries that work on top of commoditized goods, like uh, the building industry, where you have steel or lumber that you can get inexpensively. You don't have to worry about chopping down the trees yourself to build a house. Um, You know, this is our world of legal information. And it has, like, real practical um, harms that it creates for people's access to justice. We can't afford to have meaningful access even to the information and access to legal services costs more because people have to invest so much money just getting to you know bare mere access.
1: Sarah, do you do you get uncomfortable when we start talking about like the the commercial possibilities of this? Um, is it really just philosophically it needs to be free, or? Um, or is it because that I think that's where it touches on for lawyers. We're like, yeah, we've got fast case access and we don't even have to pay anything for it uh, if we're in a state that has an agreement with fast case so that it's free for us. So we've got access. Why do we care if Joe Schmo down the street can get access? That's just cutting into my my uh, my hourly fees anyway.
0: Yeah, the, the business aspects, like I find exciting just as a geek because knowing how hard research is and like some of the things that we still have to do in legal research and knowing like what information is actually out there and how it's not being properly used drives me crazy on some extent. So I'm excited to see these raw materials made available and made into something pretty awesome, but that obviously can't happen until the information is made open and free. But I also think like I'm an eternal optimist and I do hope, if the law were made to be made free and open, that there would be public interest nonprofits springing up as well, that would make the law more accessible to, for the average person to understand, not necessarily needing an attorney to interpret the law for them. Because I'm also, you know, like I said at the beginning, I'm I'm a lawyer and I am a librarian. And so I do have that balance. that's always kind of fighting within me that, you know, there are some things you need an attorney to get. I don't think a person will ever be able to completely represent themselves in many matters without the um, aid and assistance of an attorney. And so I really don't think this is going to put attorneys out of business. I don't think it will in any way make, fill in that 80% gap. Totally okay. of the access to justice gap, I think it, there's just going to be possibilities there that a nonprofit will step up, like the Legal Information Institute, that will make the law more usable. Because like one of the things, what when um, Ed was talking about the technological innovations, one of the things that they've done now is because they have access to the CFR um, that's and they work with the uh, Government Printing Office or Government Publications Office, I guess, is now called, <laughs> um, <laughs> because we're all digital now. Mm-hmm. Um, so they did this neat project where if a term is ever defined in the CFR, they hyperlink it back and forth, which is in print or in static format is impossible to do, but it's a really usable, neat innovation that really helps Joe Q public understand the law a little bit better.
1: So so if um, I can sum it up, it's uh if the law is if legal information is open, then uh lawyers and everybody else get cool stuff.
3: Exactly. That's our history. <laughs> yeah. Every single time a data set becomes open, free and open, somebody builds something cool on top of it. I mean look at Cornell's Legal Information Institute. Right. That's a great example. But uh you know uh when there was a huge fight in Oregon a couple of years ago between the Oregon legislature and publicresource.org. The Oregon legislature uh sent a takedown notice to Carl Malamud and to Tim Stanley at PublicResource.org and Justia and said, You're using the Oregon code in violation of our copyright, cut it out. And uh there was a hearing in the legislature and the legislature backed down. They said, Okay, we're not going to prosecute you for this. And out of that sprang a free version of the Oregon Code called OregonLaws.org and later WebLaws.org. And this guy named Rob Schechter, just a, you know, uh, I think he was a college student at the time and a hacker. And he built these really cool versions of the Oregon Code because it was open. Every single time one of these things comes open, people will build great apps on top of it. And, you know, that's our history. It happens every single time.
5: Today, we journey to the center of a lawyer's mind. This is Jeff. I'm stepping into his brain now. Jeff's brain is working on the case of a lifetime. Unfortunately, it's distracted with scheduling issues, documents, and timesheets. We need to act fast. I'm giving Jeff Clio, the cloud-based system that manages a lawyer's day-to-day operations. Clio handles your cases, billing, appointments, accounting, everything you need to run your practice. There, that's better. With Clio, Jeff's brain can focus on what Jeff does best. Get the Law Practice Manager more Lawyers Trust. Sign up for a free trial at clio.com slash lawyer or call 844-500-CLIO. That's 844-500-CLIO.
2: These days, law firms need to do more with less. Making this happen requires efficient, cost-effective tools that work the way you do. Available as a desktop or cloud solution, Amicus Attorney Practice Management software improves the organization of your firm and drives your bottom line. Visit amicusattorney.com slash lawyerist to discover how you can join the thousands of lawyers who rely on Amicus every day to run their practices. From matter management, time and billing, document management to specific calendaring and contacts, take control of your practice with Amicus attorney.
1: So we've been kind of throwing around the access to justice term and Ed, I know that you have strong feelings about access to legal information being a distinct thing from access to justice. And um, Sam Harden, who is one of our writers, I don't think he's done a post about this, but we've talked about it in our Slack chat room a few times. and he's he's posted about on Twitter that access to justice and access to lawyers too often get conflated into the same thing. Um, could you say more about kind of how you see the distinction and interplay between access to legal information and access to justice?
3: Yeah, it's so you know just having access to cases or statutes or regulations in their native form doesn't give people like meaningful assistance if they are wrongly accused of a crime. Google Scholar isn't going to help them, you know. Uh, not get convicted. And so, you know, the uh, it's, it's a bit like saying to someone who is, uh, you know, freezing to death in the forest, um, how can you be freezing to death? You've got uh, wood to build houses all around you access to the, to the kind of legal information itself is a raw material and that's great. And people can build all kinds of important things about it, but in its own kind of raw native state, there's not a whole lot that it can do by itself to create access to justice. So, I think it's an important component of access to justice. I think that the more legal information that we make free and open, the better access to justice we'll get. But it requires work. You got to have people who will build on top of it.
1: Sarah, how do you see that evolution happening? So, well, you know, it's, let's start with um, what's your dream for, for the states that um, that aren't doing a good job at making the law free and open? What's your dream for how they could do it right and do it better?
0: And this is actually something I'm still struggling with. Kind of actually just to go back to what Ed was saying, the access to justice versus access to information.
4: Yeah.
0: Um, My thoughts really changed on this, like through this whole process. Like I did have this at one spot point, you know, especially when I was looking at case law and like, just, you know, it hit me that you not only do do the collections only go back to about the mid nineties. And right now I'm doing a citation research project that may show that's a sufficient amount of case law to have, but Probably not, but I'll have at least empirical proof <laughs> to go either way, but the fact that there is no citator available there is one on Google Scholar if you know that Google Scholar is available um but I had this like thought like maybe we're doing more harm than good here, that a person especially you know from my time at a reference desk and dealing with the pro se or the self represented litigant, and this is a you know a lot that really kind of like what got me started down this path of access to information is access to justice. You know, a lot of times it was just, you know, I, I just want to, I don't, my, I have a lawyer. I just want to kind of do my own research to see what's happening. Um, but, you know, a lot of times they were indigent pro se and they were trying to do research. But a lot of times, you know, like because of modern media, people come in and they initially, they always say, I need the case that says, I, you know, and a lot of times it's not a case that says that it's a statute or it's a regulation or it's a building code, you know, so the fact that people are kind of going into this with a base level of ignorance, because they're not attorneys, you know, it was like, oh, are we just, you know, are we doing more harm than good? And that's a question I kind of, I don't know. And so I... So I had this one thing like, Oh my God, let's just take it all down from the web for a second there. <laughs> so, like, my whole life is a lie. Let's just <laughs> take it down, keep it behind locked guards and only attorneys can access this information. But then, you know, thinking more about it, um, cause there, there are the two reasons why I kind of got into this area of life and career. One was, a basic social justice kind of mission, wanting to help people realizing that access to information was a necessary part of democracy, and then the other part was really financial. Um, I was working in Kentucky at University of Kentucky Law Library two thousand and eight right when the the economy collapsed, and we were really having to make decisions about canceling primary law materials and so it was really economic, like why are we paying west? you know, $80,000 a year for primary law, when we should be able to get this from the internet. And so I started like very anti, anti big company, anti corporate involvement in legal publishing. Um, And you know, this is like seven, eight years ago. And now like for the kind of where I've come to almost is that maybe states should get out of the publication process altogether as in, when they were primarily doing publication via print, they outsource it to West or they outsource it to Lexus or Mickey's. You know, maybe they should do that electronically, which is awful because then they put the terms of use on it, but they're more usable formats. So there's a battle there. I don't know what is the best move for states. Should they concentrate on pumping out XML or HTML even, or even PDFs that have the content there and do it in such a way that a third party such as an Ed or a Carl can come in and publish it and make it pretty and usable and connect the regulations and the statutes and the case law for every jurisdiction. Or should states just outsource it like they did with a print to a, to a Westlaw or a Lexis and make these nice pretty websites where people can least access it for free? Um,
1: I mean, one of the frustrating things is states are terrible at technology,
0: right? Yeah, and I mean it's
1: it's so frustrating. You like you want us, you know, in Minnesota, um, we finally have e-filing, and it's based on Silverlight in an incomprehensible user interface. You know, so it's just like you know, every time they try to do something like that, I'm I'm terrified of states actually trying to publish law in usable formats because they're just going to do it wrong.
3: It's actually going to end up being like a you know either a nonprofit or a commercial publisher who says, here's a tool that does it for you. So uh, Sarah's former colleague, Elmer Masters at Cali, had a good solution for this. Uh, it was called Court Cloud, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea was you just simply upload your Word document, WordPerfect document, PDF, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, Court Cloud would make a copy of it. It would do a, um, you know, kind of an archive version of it, a public version of it that had a you know, permanent static URL, it would, uh, you know, render it in uh, usable formats. And I think it'll end up being something like that. My Mm -hmm. hope for it as someone who is a, you know, big consumer of this kind of legal information every day is that somebody, maybe us, maybe Cali, maybe uh, Harvard will create a tool that allows, you know, states to very simply just upload the document and not worry about it any further. And then it will create a permanent public archive of it, you know, maybe in an XML and ideally, but more importantly, free, open, and permanent. And that there'd be enough copies of it that you don't have to worry about a catastrophic event, losing the entire archive of the you know u s. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. I
1: mean, it feels like uh, a free and open source uh, software product that states could use and contribute back to the product. Uh, would be ideal, but I don't know. Sarah, you are a big free and open source advocate, and and I love it, but I, I have no confidence whatsoever that that would actually happen.
0: Well, that's kind of going to be one of the interesting things now to see. Um, my colleagues at Harvard, the Library Innovation Lab, they're doing a project called Free the Law, and what they're doing is they're taking all of the Harvard print case law reporters, mm-hmm. chopping them up, scanning them, putting them into lovely XML, putting in the metadata there, getting them all nicely marked up. And then they're kind of doing this carrot and stick thing with the states that, I mean, it's there's a, they have a deal with Ravel, that Ravel is going to make it free. Um, but also they're going to the states individually and saying, if you from now on publish your law in an open and free way, we will give you your entire back file of beautifully marked up cases. Hmm. And so this is the opportunity for something like Court Cloud to come in and say, and here is a tool for you to use um to publish it openly. So that's one of the problems, and that's one of the things that I know at Harvard are looking into. And if I have time, I kind of want to look into is that you know kind of the problem with legal publication is that there's at least you know 150 different Grand Poobahs of publication in every state. I mean, there's a state reporters of decisions, you know, that's an organization, and every state has a reporter decisions, but they all do it differently. And we don't really know. And they all the do, and they all is.
1: purchase software through an arcane process that is probably different across each department.
4: Yes. Yeah.
0: But like, and, and it's kind of a frustrating thing because, you know, I click for a judge. I know you type into a word a Word document, <laughs> yeah. you, you hand it to the judge, the decision, and they approve it or not. And then then it's saved as PDF, and they, we lock down that information. And I know you use WordPress. There's no reason why... I mean, like, there's things like CoreCub where you can actually just put that Word document or PDF into it, and a technological magic happens, and it shoots out into XML and HTML and different formats. But there's no reason why we're even creating law, these print artifacts of PDFs, you know, if you really want to go full bore out there to the bleeding edge of publication and what states should be doing, they they should be typing up the, these cases and statutes and regulations into some sort of program that from birth, you know, we acknowledge that it's born digital and that this program will will publish it in such a way that it'll be usable forever. Um, by all sorts of constituents. I mean, and that's like that's trans- the
1: dream, right? Is that lawyers that's from top funny. to bottom would stop using Microsoft Office and PDF
3: and start that's why learning won that
0: billion-dollar Powerball. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <That's->
3: <laughs> that is literally a unicorn that poops rainbows. Yes. I, I,
0: I mean it is, but
1: but the thing is, and and so I've. You know, I have my dream software products that I just want somebody to build, and are, and it feels almost undoable. Like I want a GitHub for lawyers, but at the moment, you can't do that if it doesn't work with Word documents, because lawyers are going to give up Word over their cold dead hands, and and all the free and open source, uh, you know, legal hackers are like, well, you have to give up Word, and it feels like it's just not going to happen. But you can't do anything cool with Word. You can't you can't output. Um, XML files in a, in an acceptable open format and and you can't you can't get lawyers to start using doc template first documents so that you can actually make document assembly work and practical you can't do anything cool with Word it's it's a massive obstacle to everything and and maybe we just need to start teaching lawyers how to how to write in Markdown or or LaTeX or something in law school and just say no this is how we're doing it from now on.
3: Oh man, that's, I mean, I think that's a pipe dream, Sam.
1: I think it is a pipe dream, but I wish it had some <laughs> I mean, I love that you're a dreamer
3: and I, I love that, you know, um, and you're not the only one, but.
1: <laughs> Maybe I'll just, I'm going to go buy a really big drum and start beating it.
3: <laughs> so can I tell you what my dream for this would be? Yes. My dream would be uh, simply that states take freedom and openness seriously. I don't care if they're doing it in Microsoft Word or in PDF or anything else, but states should stop outsourcing the publication and distribution of their primary law to publishers who are going to try and lock it down. There used to be a time, used to have official state reporters where they would take the publication of their law in-house, take it seriously, and try to disseminate it uh, widely. And the digital world allows them to do that so much less expensively than they ever could. But they're still acting like they have to incur all the expense of book publishing. Right. And so, they're still outsourcing the publication uh, to you know, commercial publishers. And I'm a commercial publisher. There's nothing wrong with you know, commerce. But the problem is that the raw materials the states should take the ownership of distribution of. They should say, we are going to have a permanent repository of our law. And we're going to publish it, you know. Maybe with media neutral citations, maybe not. But at at the very least, you know, we don't have to rely on somebody else to publish it before it becomes official, and we don't have to worry that, you know, in order to get the trade off of some commercial publisher working their magic and putting it online, uh, we have to give up the the openness or the freedom of it. States need to say, it's not that hard to do anymore. We're going to invest a little bit of time and effort up front to have our own repository, but we're not going to worry about the website. We're just going to worry about the data. And if we put the data out there, it's free and open. People will build great tools on top of it, and it's going to happen. It always has. So that's my dream. It's just that we have states that uh, take, co- take uh, control of their publishing back and make sure that the output is free and open. Uh, there's a couple of projects coming up in 2016 about this that are going to be very exciting. I don't want to steal anyone's thunder, but watch for a couple of these projects. Um I think Free the Law will probably be very surprised when a couple of states take them up on the challenge and mm. begin officially publishing their own law. Um, very cool. Uh, and so I think that'll be really exciting.
1: Sarah, uh, I'll kind of I'll let you close us out here. Um are are you satisfied with <laughs> Ed's dream if if every department uh, used a different method to publish their their law that they were producing, the regulations, the case law, whatever, um, but but it was all free and open, would that satisfy you?
0: It would in some it, it, for the most part it would, but like we were talking pipe dreams again, where I have my doubts that state agencies or the the, the legislatures, okay, the courts, the, the secretaries of state actually have the wherewithal to do this. This is where I see, I would love to see my, my library brethren and sisters to stand up. And this is a, you know, every state has a state law library or a state funded university. That's the flagship university in their jurisdiction. So a UK or a University of Minnesota or a University of Nebraska or the Nebraska State Law Library to stand up and be the, the clearinghouse and, and take over the publication efforts. Because, you know, like I was saying earlier, the economics of it, are really pushing libraries out of the abil- out of the business of being able to uh, what they do provide access to law. It's a, I think mean, it's really becoming impossible to maintain a collection of primary law if you're a law library. Um, if they could take over the publication aspects of it, get that raw material, make it usable, that's what I would like to see. You know, for them to provide leadership in a state or in a jurisdiction and to make the law usable overall. But yeah, I mean, I would be satisfied if they, if we could just get rid of the copyright and the terms of use restrictions, from there, I think we would really see innovation happen. But those, I think, are the two main ones. Because we can OCR PDFs, we can scrape websites, we can keep up to date, that sort of way. But the terms of use and the copyright are really the primary obstacles right now.
3: Sam, can I add one more thing? Yeah. Um, I think as long as we're talking about kind of public access to information, and public access to law. There has been one quiet thing that we've worked on that, um, we haven't made a whole lot of hay about, but I would like to kind of underscore because it, it, it's a, it's a great example of public leadership that we didn't really do. Uh, the state of Oregon law library, um, for the whole state, um, just last year said, we're going to make, um, Oregon opinions and opinions of the ninth circuit available to everyone in the state for free. Um, so they they did a, a contract with with Fastcase, and they have put Fastcase legal research for free for every uh, citizen of the state of Oregon. If you are in the state, you can go to the state of Oregon law library and do as much research as often as you want for as long as you want for free. Um, and I think that's the the kind of thing that you know it's it's become affordable enough now that. States can begin to take control of this. It's a good example of
1: it. Well, let me challenge you on that a little bit, though, because um, FastCase is a great product, but it is a proprietary system. Isn't, isn't that pretty much the same thing as asking a third party to publish your laws?
3: Yeah, I mean, so look, I would love it if Oregon was doing it itself. Um, and if the Oregon courts and the Oregon legislatures were publishing it in a free and open way, that is ideal. In the world that we're living in right now where they don't, like I said before, it may have to be private publishers who are providing that intermediate step.
1: Uh, Sarah, pretend like uh, we've just hung up on Ed. Does that make you uncomfortable?
0: Not really. That is uncomfortable as it would have made me four months ago before I realized how bad things were.
1: (laughs) 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 That would be a huge step in the right direction, given where things really are.
0: Like, I'll take that as an intermediate step before, you know, because we might need some exemplars out there before states really realize what's possible.
1: So I'm going to have the last word and sum up. Um, if if the data, if the legal information is free and open, everybody gets cool stuff. And that, I think, may be the note to end on. And Ed and Sarah, thank you so much for being with us. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, I'm also going to put in a plug here um, for Sarah in particular on Twitter. Ed's Ed's a CEO of a company, so he can't quite be quite as <laughs> flamboyant on Twitter. But Sarah is really fun <laughs> to follow on Twitter. Um, she and she's been she's one of my oldest twitter follows um and and i'm not getting rid of her anytime soon so um, you it's, get the handle. yep it's s glassmeyer um and if and if you have trouble i'll throw it into the this podcast along with links to um sarah's blog and to uh to fast case obviously and i'll throw in the twitter handles and uh you should follow both of them but but in particular sarah's a lot of fun to follow so thank you both of us both of you for being with us today um for the great conversation
3: thanks sam
0: thank you
1: make sure you catch next week's episode of the lawyerist podcast subscribe to the Lawyerist podcast in itunes or in your favorite podcast app you can listen to it at lawyeristcom slash podcast you can also subscribe to the lawyerist insider our weekly newsletter just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top we'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode thanks for listening